Hi, parents. It's Robin McMahon here. Thank you for listening to Parenting Our Future, which is in the top 0.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Before we dive into this episode, I want to invite you to join my membership site, The Parent Toolbox. You can join this membership for free. It's at www.parent-toolbox.com. And this is the companion site to my show, Parenting Our Future. In The Parent Toolbox, you will find game-changing tools and resources from both myself and my guest experts who are among some of the top minds in the parenting space. There are over a hundred resources to help you navigate screen time, co-parenting, meltdown, teenagers, and so much more. Join today at www.parent-toolbox.com. Now back to the show. Hey everybody, it's Robin here. Welcome to another episode of Parenting Our Future. I am going to talk to you about some serious stuff today with my guests, some serious conversations that come up that we often don't know how to answer. We don't know how to address with our own kids. And I have somebody really special here who's going to help to make sense of all of this. So I have Dr. Lauren Starnes here, and she's the senior vice president and chief academic officer at the Goddard Systems LLC, which is the franchisor for the Goddard School, if you you haven't heard about it. Um, Lauren has more than 20 years experience in education, including curriculum development, evaluation, and implementation, as well as teaching and consulting in the fields of preschool, uh, special needs, and elementary education. And she is the author and an award-winning author at that with the 2023 Independent Publishing Award winner for her book, Big Conversations with Little Children. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about. So welcome. Thank you. So happy to have you here. And uh, I really just want to kind of dive right into this, this book. I think that a lot of us see the world changing in ways that we have a hard time making sense of. And so when we have to go to explain big things to our kids, it can be really tough. And so let me just back up for a second. What made you write this book to begin with these big conversations with small, with little children? Sure. Great question, Robin. So my boys are teenagers now, but when they were two and four years old, respectively, I would work, I was working from home and my four-year-old marched into my office one day with time book picture of the year. And he slammed the book down on my desk, clearly angry little brother right behind him looked me in the face and said, mommy, what happened on September 11th? Oh, and I remember looking at the faces of my children who weren't even alive in 2001 when that happened. Um, and I asked him, what do you think happened on September 11th? Trying to get context. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't know. I saw the picture and I asked my teacher and she said, we don't talk about that. <gasps> and so oh. here was my little wide-eyed four-year-old thinking he'd done something wrong by asking a question. And so I give a very simple explanation. I said, you know, there were planes that crashed into a building and people got hurt, but there were a lot of helpers that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and my two-year-old starts laughing and says, it was an accident. And my four-year-old turns to him and says, no, Gavin, things like that don't happen by accident. Whoa. And I had an epiphany of here was my child who'd asked a question and been silenced, thinking he'd done something wrong. Mm. Thankfully, I answered the question and he already had a concept that something really terrible had happened, even a time in which he didn't exist. I began to keep a journal of topics, questions that my boys asked me that made me pause in my tracks. Yeah. Or things that I encountered in preschools that I supported where 
Children were, children were exposed to different world events or things in their family or community. And they would ask a teacher, they would ask the school and the school was struggling at times to know, how do I respond? What do I say when a young child asks a big question? Oh, wow. And, you know, our kids have such good questions. They have such interesting insights, don't they? They do. And that, that does stop you in your tracks. A lot of the times I, you know, one of my boys, he, he's, I'll say things and then he'll rebut and I'll be like, man, I never thought of that. You know, I just like, right. So true. So, okay. So you, you really did this based on the kinds of questions that stopped you in your tracks and this book, big conversations with little children, you've got over 40 topics. So you were stopped in your tracks pretty often. Sure. I mean, yeah. it, again, if you think about, think back as a parent, it's all those questions where our child asked and either we had emotions, we weren't sure what to say, or we didn't answer the question. I mean, I, I even as a parent, remember times where I kind of dodged the quote, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, because I wasn't exactly sure what to say, given their age and their exposure. Um, and so this is really meant to, to open up dialogue with our children um, in a way that they need. And what do you say when somebody says to, to a child, well, we don't talk about that. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I, I think the tendency to silence is normal. I think what that really means is that we as adults are questioning ourselves. Mm. And some of the questions our children ask us, we ask the world, why did that happen? Why did that happen to that person, that community? How could I have prevented this? I mean, there are all kinds of questions that we don't have answers to. And sometimes I think we as adults are hesitant to say to our children, I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. That's scary. I think the other reality is sometimes the questions are political and we're not exactly sure how much we should share or explain to a young child. But oftentimes the questions are emotional. Um, either it triggers something in us or we ourselves are dealing with the emotion of what's happening. And because we really haven't processed it yet, we simply make the excuse that, well, the child is young, they can't possibly understand, so I'll dodge the question. Mm. What we fail to realize as parents is when we do that, we often create higher levels of anxiety, worry, and fear in our children, and oftentimes a sense of shame that they did something wrong by asking the question. Mm. Oh, well, uh, that makes total sense to me. It really does. And we're, we're leaving our kids to figure it out for themselves in all of the innocence that they have and all the ways and the experience that they don't have. So it really means that they're going to come up with a, an idea that's probably wrong. And again, like you just said, will will invite anxiety and shame. And that's not what you ever meant. You never meant that. You never meant right. that. Yeah. So instead, if you don't know, and, and we're going to talk about some specific areas that we can, we can help our kids with, but if you really don't know, is there a way to just sort of blanket statement, say, you know, I'm not sure, let me go and find out and get back to you. What would you say? There is, I think it's okay to tell our children that we don't know that we'll find out. I think it's also okay to say to our children, I don't know why that happened, but here's how I feel about it. Mm. And to let our children know that we have emotions as adults too. I mean, children, when they ask questions, they're not just listening for our verbal response. They're looking at our nonverbal. 
And yeah. I think I think oftentimes, even if we you know answer the question, but or express something differently in our facial expressions, it's confusing to children. Mm-hmm. And so I think oftentimes the I don't know and then labeling of emotions is the most appropriate way to have the conversation, because yeah. the child's likely asking because they also have emotion. Confusion might be one of them, but they also might have sadness or fear um, based on what they've heard or think that they've heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's a really lovely way of handling it. I love that. And I think it's so important that we show our kids that we feel feelings too, you know, and that normalizes it. And it also helps grow emotional intelligence, you know? Um, So with that said, you know, here's some hard topics that I want to cover with you. So we're going to talk about a few different things. Um, So how would you talk to a child about a miscarriage? whether it's a recent one, whether it is one that was 10 years ago, the loss of a, of a, of a baby, of a child, that's a significant loss and a, and it's such a, a sad topic. How do you bring that up? How do you, hard topic. and, and let me ask you, I think it's sort of two things because maybe your child knows a baby's coming and then the baby doesn't come. Um, but then also do you, how do you bring it up if, you know, your child is seven or eight years old and there was a child that didn't, that didn't make it. Do you bring that up? Do you talk to them about that too? So it's sort of a twofold question. It is, it is a complicated question. I think at the onset, the, the easiest way is to address it when the child has a question. Mm, like that. Then okay. we know that it's a topic in hand. The child has some sort of information or insight and is seeking more information, um, it's, it's quite different when we as parents have to think, do I want to get ahead of this topic and bring it up to my child? Mm-hmm. Um, miscarriage, if the child is unaware, is very private. I'm not sure how many parents would, would bring that up naturally to the child, but it could be years later when the child says, why don't, why don't I have a brother or sister? Where the parent might perhaps want to share that there was a baby um, or not. I think at that point, is it, really, it really depends on the parent's comfort. Um, and the child's age and what the parent knows, like how much can your child handle or conceptualize? We know our children. Uh, we know that some topics might be too much for them. Uh, the book really focuses on when the child asks the question okay. um, and seeks okay. information because then it's, then we're on the spot. We don't yeah. have the choice at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Clearly uh, because we're being asked. Okay. And so, so how do you talk about a miscarriage? Sure. Um, so I, I need us to, for the moment, think about the perspective of the child. Okay. Um, so I'm a young child. I'm told by, by my parents that there's a baby on the way. And I, as a young child, work through the emotions. Some children are excited. Some aren't quite sure. But I've come to accept it. One thing that young children see is that most often when the information is shared that a baby's on the way, there's excitement. And they see the excitement in the expectant mother. And this is a celebration and a celebratory thing. Fast forward, the child asks about the baby and they're told there is no baby or they're told, don't ask that question. Mm. Um, and the child has a hard time understanding. We were celebrating this a few weeks ago. Why is the question now wrong? Um, and so one of the most important things to do is when asked is to first pause um, because as adults, understandably, miscarriage is a difficult topic, whether you've experienced it firsthand or through friends and family. Um, it's a very difficult topic, um, but then it's important to ask the child, you know, what, why, why, you know, what do you think happened? Get a, get a gauge where the child already understands um, is very important because it gives you insight into what they may already know. 
But then it's important that we do answer the question in very simple, very concrete and very matter of fact ways. Mommy was going to have a baby. The baby stopped growing. So we're not going to have a baby right now. Mm. Um, very simple. Um, mm. And that way the child understands, okay, there was something to look forward to. Here's what happened and kind of where we are. It's also important to then label emotions uh, for the child. How does that make you feel? Hmm. Now the book addresses something that happens frequently, which is the fact that young children lack social and emotional awareness. And the child might say, fine. Um, which as a parent could be very difficult to hear. Um, it's important that when we ask a child how they feel, that we honor and respect their response. And their response might not be what we as adults feel. So the child who says, I'm fine, it is perfectly okay for the adult to say, mom is really sad. Mom was looking forward to having a brother or sister for you. And we're not going to have the baby right now. And that makes mom feel sad. It's okay for the child to have their emotions affirmed, but then to share with them that the adult in the situation might have different feelings. And we should label that for the child. Um, and then again, check in the child. Do you have any other questions? Mm. You know, do you think we should do something to help? Um, you know, what are some things that we could do that might make, might make mom feel better? Whatever it may be, thinking about turning it into action so the child can actually do. Mm. Um, the child can't directly impact the miscarriage, but the child can impact comforting, uh, you know, a, a, a mother who's mourning. Um, or the child may have additional questions. Will we have a baby again? Um, and the book addresses that too. Matter of fact, you know, maybe the parents have an answer, maybe they don't. And the answer mm -hmm. might be, I don't know. I don't know if we will, you know, we were planning to have a brother or sister for you and the baby stopped growing. So we're not going to have a baby right now. It's also important that we then reaffirm the child that they are loved, that they are safe um, and that they have an important role um, because that way the child can separate themselves from the emotions happening in the family. Wow. Reaffirming that they are loved and safe. It's beautiful. How important it is that they, that you have something that they can turn into action. It, it's a really good idea because it helps the child express how they're feeling. You know, one thing that we know is that young children feel a lot of emotions, but they lack the emotional vocabulary to tell us. Think mm. of the two-year-old throwing a tantrum. They're yeah. frustrated. They don't know how to tell us. So they act out. That's right. So what we're actually teaching the young child is when I feel something, there are things that I can do. Mm. So the child may say that they feel sad. And we can make some suggestions of things that we do when we're sad or things that might help the child. Would you like to draw a picture? You know, would you like to, to put on some music? You know, when I feel sad, I like to listen to music and dance and move my body how I'm feeling. Helps me feel better. Um, it also is a way to teach empathy. You know, can we make a picture for mommy? Um, mm. You know, should we give mommy some time in the house by herself? And maybe we go for a walk. Just things to help the child begin to think about their emotional needs but also how they can address the emotional needs of others, which is a really another important developmental skill. Right, that's a really beautiful uh, idea. I really like that idea. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And one that I, I hadn't really thought about. So I really, I really appreciate that. Okay, so moving from, from a miscarriage to something that probably a lot of people have faced, will face, is the death of a pet. Sure. So death of a pet is generally a child's first exposure to death. 
Mm. We think about it, the child that loses the goldfish or the, the hamster that dies or the hermit crab that dies or anything else, death of an animal usually is the child's first exposure to death. And it's also important to realize that for young children, death is usually misconceptualized. If you mm. think about cartoons, the character gets, yeah. I think about Bugs Bunny, you know, the character gets, or, or Roadrunner hit by the car and they float in the air and they're back. Totally um, confusing. Yeah. Very <laughs> confusing. So we want to avoid any and all euphemisms. Crossing the rainbow bridge, the child will say, great, let's go. You know, gone to a better place, regardless of faith, the child wants to know where that place is and can they go get the pet? Um, it's important that we explain death for pet very matter of factly. Um, you know, so I need to tell you something very sad that happened. This morning, Fido died. And that means that his body stopped working. So we won't have Fido as our dog anymore. Fido is not coming back. Um, mm -hmm. The child has to understand that there's finality um, in death in terms of physical presence, mm -hmm. that they can't go retrieve the animal, that they're, you know, that they're, that they're gone. Um, and that's important that the child understands that because that's going to elicit different emotions than if they're imagining that the road runner floating above the street, that's then going to come, you know, running back in the house. Right. Now, is this a conversation that you have to prepare your child? If your animal is sick, uh, do you ever say, you know, you've got a puppy, let's say, you know, and like, I guess, I guess, do you ever prepare them along the way? I think it's important that children understand that everything living will die. Mm. Um, and when, the, you know, but also we don't want to scare the child. Um, yeah, so puppy, I know. I'm not sure I'd bring about death, but, it, but an ailing pet, you know, yeah. when we see that, you know, that the cat is declining, I think it's okay to explain to the child, you know, that, that, you know, the cat is 12 years old and, you know, her body is slowing down and one day her body will stop working and she will die. And when she dies, we will not have her as our cat anymore. Mm. Um, if a family abides by, by faith principles, they may want to in, talk about what they believe from a religious perspective, mm -hmm. um, or they may want to leave it very matter of fact. And when she dies, you know, we will, we will bury her. And what that means is um, preparing the child for what may occur. Mm. What often happens with death of a pet is it's unexpected. Um, mm -hmm. So the hamster was fine yesterday and the hamster is, is not okay today. Um, and so we tend to have to have the conversation in the moment. And so it's important that we as adults are prepared for that. Um, having an animal does mean that at some point the animal will, will likely, you know, precede us in death. And so being prepared to have the conversation with the child, especially with short lifespan animals like goldfish mm -hmm. and hamsters. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this also moves into, you know, the death of a grandparent perhaps, or a family member, right? Um, do you ever, do you ever compare things to nature? Like every fall, the leaves fall and, you know, uh, anything like that? I don't know. You can, depending on older children, there's actually a beautiful book called The Fall of Freddie the Leaf, which talks oh, yeah. about death um, from a leaf perspective the leaf is green and blooming and it falls and it disintegrates and goes into the ground um it depends on the age of the child prior you know younger than age five that metaphor will not make sense to the child hmm. um older children elementary school age children might understand it's still important that we explain death as a body stopping working um, okay because that's just that's very matter of fact um they might ask why or what happened and then we might explain 
or death of a goldfish, death of a hamster, we might say, I, I don't know. Goldfish and hamster don't live as long as humans live. Um, mm. And so it's okay to then answer the question of, we don't always know why things die, um, but it's important that regardless of our response that we reiterate that death is final um, and that, we, that, that that living being is no longer part of our physical world. Right, okay. Okay, thank you for that. Um, okay, what about when there is a change in your family, when there is a breakup, a divorce? How do you handle that? Sure. So we know uh, the divorce rate is at an all-time high. Um, we know that changes in families happen. Um, I have a lot of different chapters in the book to talk about different changes in families. So okay. Divorce and separation, birth of a new child, um, military deployment, parental Ooh. incarceration, drug abuse, alcohol abuse in the home. Yeah. Um, it's important that children have someone talk with them about what's happening. We, we can't, we can't, you know, make the assumption that children aren't noticing what's occurring. If we think about, you know, separation and divorce for young children, it is most important that, that the parents hopefully together if they can, but if not separately, talk to the child and reiterate that there's, that you're still a family and that the love of the parent to the child is not impacted, nor did the child do anything to cause the change. Um, and we might say as adults, well, my child knows that they're loved and they didn't cause it. It is important that every child hear and be told that they did nothing to cause the divorce or separation. That actually transcends beyond the age in which my book addresses. But it's also important that young children have the reassurance of the love that they have with the parent. Um, young children will have questions about why. And again, matter of fact responses. Mommy loves you very much. Daddy loves you very much. And we've decided it's better for us to live in two separate homes. We're still a family. Um, and keeping it very matter of fact, it's not appropriate to share any of the intimate details that led to the divorce. Um, children don't need to be exposed to that at a young age. Um, and we should really strive very hard to shield them from that. Um, it's most important just to address it as a, as a decision, a social decision and a living decision. Um, and then if known, let the child know what's going to change in their world. So if, if we know, you know, you're going to live at mom's house for a week and then dad's house for a week, but you can always call mom or dad from either house. You are still going to go to your same school, like reiterating to the child, what does this mean for them? And then again, reassuring the child of their love and their place in the family and the mm -hmm. fact that they did nothing to lead to the, to the parental decision to separate or divorce. That's really about coming back to that really as the most stability possible that you anchor in that love and that dedication. Correct. Correct. And again, regardless of the emotional um, rifts that occur with separation and divorce, if parents can unite on that to have that conversation together, it's very powerful. Mm. Um, and yeah. regardless of the separation and divorce reasoning, we know that generally speaking, both parents are firmly committed to ensuring the safety, security, and emotional well-being of their child. Um, and so having the conversation together is ideal, if at all possible, maybe with the third person present if there's a fear of emotion, but just being very united and having a, a unified but simple uh, conversation with the child. Mm, yeah. And, and making sure the unified is, is the key piece that I'm pulling out as well, because we don't want to get into a place where we're cutting each other down and, you know, saying unkind things that, that just creates more confusion and 
And just, we don't want to do that to our kids. It's just so not fair. And we know that as an adult, there's a, there's a price that our kids pay for that as a child too. But even later on in life, you know, it, it leaves a mark and that's not fair. That's not right. Even in the book, I talk as well, about even after death, after divorce and separation, things to be mindful of, like, you know, preparing yourself when the child comes home from mom's house and says, we did something so fun. And there's kind of that feeling of, of disappointment of not being part of it or even anger, but separating our own emotions from those of the child and asking, how did that make you feel? Um, And allowing ourselves to celebrate the child's experience and really separate ourselves from it. Right. Most parents, I probably all parents that go through divorce separation would say the child had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Um, and if we believe that, then then in, then ensure that the child feels that they had nothing to do with it. So when mm-hmm. they share positive things that happen in the opposite home, um, letting ourselves separate emotion and celebrate with the child and be part of that emotion um, and not feeling the need to one up or put down the experience, yeah. um, which is the adult's emotion, which should be kept separate. Absolutely. And that's not easy. And that's not easy. And, and, and I like the, the first thing you said when I started asking you about the specific scenarios is to pause. I think that is a really good habit in so many situations, if not all, it's just, okay, take a second, just take a second, gather your thoughts, center yourself, you know, (laughs) notice what's going on with you. And then you proceed or ask for time. That, exactly right. I tell the child, you know, I, I'm going to answer your question. Give me a moment if you, if I can, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go walk down the hallway and then I'm going to come right back and I'm going to have an answer for you. Um, that's okay. The other thing I would say is oftentimes when we're talking to young children about these, about the heavier adult topics, we might ask them how they're feeling or if they have other questions, the child might also need to have a pause. And so respect the silence for some young children. We're going to ask that question and we're going to be met with silence. Mm. And that doesn't mean the child is ignoring us. It probably means just like we needed a second. They need to process what they were just told. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just told that my family is going to change. I don't know how I feel yet. Right. So give the child moments to think through that um, and don't Mm. feel the need to label for them. Let them take a few moments and then come back to us with a response. Mm. And, and I think, and tell me your thoughts on this too, is, is keeping the door open for future questions and conversation. Absolutely. It's always important to check back with the child hours later that night, the next day, you know, I know we talked about, you know, mom and dad divorcing. Do you have questions about that? Or I know we talked, I know, I know the goldfish died three weeks ago. Do you want to talk about the goldfish? I mean, whatever it may be, allowing the child to know. The important thing is if we establish in the early childhood years that it is okay to ask questions and that mm. that parent and that adult is going to honor, respect, and answer the question honestly, then when children continue to grow into pre-adolescence and adolescence and the questions don't become any easier, they just become even more adult, the child will still feel like that door is open to ask the questions. And that's what we as parents always want to be, to be a sounding board, to know what's happening in our child's lives. Um, we can establish that foundation early. It's so important. And, and also to be the, to be that, that parent that they can always come to no matter what, 
to talk to and know that they're not going to be made fun of. They're not going to be judged or criticized or put down that. It's just like, look, you can come to me no matter what. Right. And I will respect you and I will honor you. I, and most importantly, respect you. You know, like if, if your child is coming to you, think about how that must be weighing on them, you know, yeah. and then to be met with kindness and, and information versus, oh, just don't worry about that. You're too young to think about that. <gasps> Ouch. You know, and I know I was treated like that, you know, not just by my parents. I remember from teachers and different things like that. And it just leaves you feeling terrible. And so it's an honor for, for your child to come to you and ask you this. I really, I really believe that. It is one of the most appropriate responses, the child that maybe comes and asks the question, you know, what, you know, did you know my goldfish die? What does that mean? Whatever the question is, a good response is thank you for trusting me to ask that question. Um, Because what the child is saying is, I don't know, but I believe and trust that you do. And I believe and trust that if I ask you, you're going to tell me. That's a huge statement of faith that the child is making, be it in a parent or any other adult in their life. It also buys you time. Um, But thinking of thanking the child, because that way the child immediately says, oh, there's no shame in this. Mm -hmm. They're appreciative that I ask questions. Great. If you can answer that question, I have more. Um, but we should always answer those questions and, and we should seek that curiosity from our children. You know, it's so interesting that you say that this is a s- s- sort of, uh, a, sort of a tangent a little bit, but I, I remember talking to somebody, uh, she was a copywriter and, uh, and, and she has, and it looks like an adult son who has, um, who's neurodivergent. And, uh, he kind of came in and said something and she sort I could see she was uncomfortable, like, oh, geez, I wish she hadn't said that or whatever. Um, and I could see her, the stress on her face. Right. And I just said to him, I said, oh, I said, well, thank you for telling me. And I'm not quite sure what he said. It what didn't necessarily make any sense. And her whole demeanor changed. She was like, oh, oh, you get it. And that was a really beautiful moment. So saying thank you. That's big. So we have another, another topic. And again, you have topics in this book. There's 40 of them um, from illness to disasters, to understanding gender. Uh, and, and you said parental incarceration. Thank you for, for addressing some of these subjects that I don't think are typical to, to address. And, and I think it's so helpful. It's like, here's a guide to all of the most uncomfortable questions you could ever be asked. And here's the answer on how to handle it in a really mature, thoughtful way that, that just helps your kids understand it. And even you make sense of it too, because I think it helps you to think through it too, right? It does. It sure does. Yeah. And so I want to say before I ask you this last question that uh, you have for us in the parent toolbox, a a chapter synopsis, I think is what you would call it, or maybe you call it a little bit different uh, about a couple of these topics. One is the divorce and the other one is gun violence. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what you have for us in the parent toolbox? Sure. Um, So for any of these topics, we know that as a parent, it's important that we are prepared for the question. And so it's gonna guide you through how to be prepared. What questions might a young child ask and what are some appropriate responses? It's not a script, but appropriate responses that would make sense. The most important part is it then talks about developmentally, what might the child's follow-up questions be? 
or the unexpected response that the child might have. Okay. Um, the unexpected response is important because again, young children lack social and emotional context. And so if we're prepared that, okay, when I tell my child this and I answer it, they might say that I'm also prepared for the response. Um, and so there's, again, a guide for every one of the topics um, that really guides us through how to help young children um, with these difficult conversations. No, that's that's just fantastic. So, so wonderful. So that does lead me to my next question, which unfortunately is relevant, will be relevant no matter when you're listening to this, but let's talk about gun violence. How do we make sense of it to our kids and how do we explain it? Yeah, it's it's a really important topic. Unfortunately, uh, we continue to see instances of, of gun violence and even in younger and younger age schools. And as much as we as adults try to shield children from it, and we should, um, young children are likely to be exposed to it. Um, they're going to see pictures in magazines at grocery stores. They're going to hear reference to a school by name or, you know, the shooting in a certain city. Um, they're going to see emotion on the faces of their parents and loved ones when they are dropped off at school. But they're also likely going to be going through safety drills at the school um, in case they were ever in a similar situation, which is going to lead a lot of young children to ask questions such as what happened at said location? Or my friend told me that there was a shooting. What does that mean? And so it's important that we as, as adults are prepared for that conversation. Um, and unfortunately, as it happens more and more frequently, there's more likelihood that young children are going to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a topic that nobody wants to talk about. And I think we all need some help in talking about it. So I just want to say thank you so much for addressing these big questions. And I love the idea of big conversations with little children. I love it so much. And every parent needs it. So where can people find your book? Sure. So the best place is Amazon. Um, big Conversations with Little Children uh, by, by Lauren Starnes. Um, I also have a website, drlaurenstarnes.com, um, which Excellent. will also link you directly to ordering the book. That's fantastic. And people can find you, um, yeah, and the Goddard School on all of the uh, the socials as well. Plus uh, the website is goddardschool.com. Um, but Lauren, thank you so much for being here and thank you for this work. I just, I can't say thank you enough because we need this help. And there's just a lot of stuff going on in this world that's hard for us to make sense of, like I've said, and uh, and we just need the help. And, and it just, it helps to sometimes just be spoon fed the information, you know, instead of trying to figure it out for ourselves. So true. Well, thank you, Robin, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and connection.